0: With the case slowly building against Christopher Halliwell for the murder of Becky Godden Edwards, Steve Fulcher was completely out of the loop. He only learnt about the trial shortly before the scheduled date when he got a call from the Crown Prosecution Service. They asked him if he would be willing to make the lengthy journey back from Somalia in order to give evidence at Bristol Crown Court. Steve didn't have to think very hard about his answer
1: course I was always going to go in many ways this was the step that I've been waiting for since the unbelievable decision to stand out the indictment concerning Becky Gordon back in 2012 I was hardly going to abandon Becky's mother Karen Edwards who had supported me vigorously throughout in the opportunity to bring justice for her daughter so of course I was always going to go and um, was pleased to do so
0: and so, on the 21st of July 2016, Steve returned to Bristol Crown Court, hoping to complete the journey he had begun more than five years before and to see justice for Becky Godden Edwards. Get a berry blast-off for your day with the new Berry Pebbles. A berry twist on a classic breakfast. Perfect
2: for giving those growing minds a blast of creativity. (laughs) With the new Berry Way to Pebbles. Yabba Dabba Doo You with
0: Berry Pebbles. Head to postpebblescereal.com to learn more. Yabba Dabba Doo and the Flintstones and all related characters and elements. Copyright and trademark Hanna-Barbera. The trial had a different judge who began by making a new ruling on the thorny issue of the admissibility of the confession evidence relating to Becky's body. This time, the judge ruled that the jury would hear the evidence after all, a fact which everyone in this podcast has something to say about. Let's start with BBC journalist Steve Brody. Well,
3: this decision by a High Court judge, in fact, he'd retired, he came back to sit in this case, the second trial of of Halliwell, was extraordinary, overused word, perhaps. But in 15 minutes, he completely wiped out the whole of Mrs. Justice Cox's rulings and said, yes, it's all admissible. So how can one High Court judge say it's inadmissible? A second High Court judge comes down to Bristol and decides it's perfectly all right for the jury to hear it. That does take some explaining. That really
0: does. What was the fuss all about? Becky's mother, Karen Edwards.
4: What I'll never, ever understand is, in 2011, a High Court judge ruled this evidence of Steve Fulcher's conduct inadmissible in a court of law. In 2016, A few years later, a high court judge ruled the evidence admissible in a court of law. What is that all about? I just cannot understand for the life of me, all those years, the torment that we have all been through when it could have been quite easily
2: avoidable.
0: The police scribe, Debbie Peach, who carefully documented the entire arrest process,
2: The issue for me is it just knocks so much against normal common sense that I really have difficulty with a judge in 2011 making a call that this evidence was inadmissible because she found the conduct of the officer oppressive and a judge in 2016 who can look at the same Evidence and find that that evidence actually is admissible and that nothing happened in between. Well, I think you you look to judges to make a judgment, and what it tells you is that sometimes they don't get it right. But there are some people who think that what a judge says is inviolable and they don't challenge it, even if. It just goes against all common sense. And that's how how I felt about it, is that it was just so against common sense. I think the police should have challenged the ruling. Definitely, the original judge's decision. It was there to be challenged.
0: And finally, journalist Rob Murphy. It's a complete reversal,
1: but I think it was only allowed to happen because Hallowell had admitted the murder of Sean, because he'd admitted that murder that this confession could go ahead.
0: Now again, this is complicated, so bear with me here. The second judge, Sir John Griffith Williams, was very particular in his wording. As you might expect, he takes dozens of pages to explain the ruling. He was clear that he agreed with the original ruling that Halliwell's confessions may have been obtained by oppression. He says this explicitly, I would have reached the same conclusions and ruled the confession and the evidence of the finding of the body consequent upon those confessions inadmissible. But he goes on to say that because Becky's murder was subsequently dropped from the indictment and because Halliwell had since pleaded guilty to Sean's murder, the protections of Pace that prohibit a court from allowing such tainted confession evidence are no longer relevant and the former ruling is no longer binding on him. Assessing whether Halliwell's second confession to Becky's murder was a result of oppression he says that while he agrees with the earlier ruling that the confession cannot be viewed in isolation from what had already passed between Halliwell and Fulcher, he said, In my judgment, the effect of the oppression had ended with the confession to the murder of Sean O'Callaghan. While oppression in one interview may taint a later interview, I am satisfied that on the facts of this case, that did not happen. Once the defendant had confessed and taken the police to the location where he had disposed of the body of Sharno O'Callaghan, his questioning was at an end. I am not persuaded that what the defendant then said may not have been said voluntarily. It follows, I am satisfied, what the defendant said by way of a confession to the murder of Becky Godden was said voluntarily. As a result, he says, it need not be excluded from the court in accordance with Pace. He then deals with the issue of fairness from the first ruling. Essentially, the question here is this. Would admitting the evidence have an adverse effect on the fairness of the proceedings? In the first ruling, the judge had found that it would because of Steve's substantial and irretrievable breaches of pace. This time, Sir John finds differently. Here's what he said. Where, notwithstanding breaches of the code, there are no grounds for concluding that a confession was anything other than voluntary, it would offend good sense to exclude the evidence simply because there had been deliberate and substantial breaches of the code. There's a lot more to this ruling and I'm skipping a lot of detail here, but here's his conclusion. I am satisfied that the defendant's confession to the murder of Becky Godden and his taking the police to where he had buried her was not the consequence of oppression. I am satisfied also that notwithstanding the breaches of the code of practice, that the evidence is admissible in the exercise of my discretion as direct evidence of his guilt. It was another very consequential decision in this highly unusual and dramatic case. Steve Brody explains.
3: It's a very complicated situation, the judge would argue. I imagine he would argue that uh, this was specific to this case. In his ruling, he did not exactly clear Steve Fulcher, but by his very decision to allow the material, i.e. the confessions, to the jury, makes Steve Fulcher's position so much better. That's the important thing. One High Court judge says you can't, another person says you can. And that is probably untenable for a situation like this. Exactly the same evidence, exactly the same evidence. As far as as we go as to the the confession, the material given to Steve Fulcher, there was additional forensic evidence, quite a substantial amount of forensic evidence discovered by police by the police force in relation to Becky Godden. Good work was done. So really Halliwell had nowhere to go. One, the judge allowed his confessions to be heard by the jury. And secondly, there was more forensic evidence which tied Halliwell to the death of Becky Godden. A very odd situation and much talked about, much talked about in in legal circles. I've had lots of discussions with, with lawyers and one or two judges about it. And the feeling is that something unusual has happened.
0: With the confession evidence now allowed in court and the case the police had built, Halliwell's position was impossible. To compound his issues further, Halliwell made an unexpected decision. Steve Brody explains. In the
3: second trial, Halliwell immediately sacked his lawyer. And in some ways that can be a clever idea because the trial judge then looks after a defendant, protects them, perhaps more than he would do normally. It's a maneuver to make sure the prosecution doesn't roll over uh, the defendant. In this case, I don't think it worked. He came out with uh, what the judge famously described as a cock and ball story about the fact that two drug dealers had murdered
0: Becky Godden and buried her. He dismissed that completely. Becky's mother, Karen, saw it as yet another grandstanding performance from the man who had murdered her daughter.
4: Christopher Halliwell decided to defend himself at the trial. Who defends themselves in a murder investigation? Surely you would want a qualified barrister. It was just unbelievable in there, absolutely unbelievable. It was almost like he was putting on a performance. He wanted to be the big I am. I think he thought he was going to be some hotshot barrister. And I will admit, when he said he was defending himself, he'd spent a lot of time in prison. And I just wondered whether or not he had actually was going to pull this off. But he just made a complete and utter idiot of himself. He'd become a laughing stock. It was, um, you could see, I mean, the jewellers' faces, it was, They were just horrified at the things he was coming out with. It was just, it was like a comedy show. And he was putting us through that pain again, dragging it all out.
5: As
0: a result of Chris Halliwell's decision to defend himself, Steve Fulcher would now come face to face with the murderer he had shared that extraordinary conversation with five years before. Well, he was,
1: trying, he was trying to take the role of a practiced barrister, which is never a bright idea, and suggested that, well, he's asking me what I concluded from the notion that the specific description he'd given me of Becky's grave, this notion of having dug five foot deep at the East Leech Field, he asked me, what did I conclude from that? And I concluded that he'd mixed up his deposition sites. He couldn't remember which year he'd murdered her in, 2003, four or five, which would indicate there are more than, murder isn't uh, an isolated incident. And uh, he'd confused one deposition site and the depth with another. That clearly wasn't what he was hoping to draw out from me from that issue. He was trying to take a line of defense that he'd never been there before and some kind of strange account that that was the first time he'd ever been there. In his evidence-in-chief, that story changed to some mystery drug dealers that he was scared of and therefore uh, couldn't have been. But clearly there was no sort of proper thought put into his defense story at all. But it's sat festering in a cell for five and a half years, recognizing no doubt that the only thing that convicted him was this conversation with me. And uh, this has turned turned itself into implacable hatred such that he obviously rehearsed this line that he ended with when cross-examining me in, in court, which was, it was a pleasure to ruin your career. And then he said, sotto voce, you corrupt bastard, which was only picked up by certain sharp-eared uh,
0: guardian journalists, I think. It doesn't appear on the court tapes, funny enough. The journalist Rob Murphy following the case, it was open and shut.
1: Now, with this confession, been shown to jurors, plus the new evidence, the new evidence that police have been uh, gathering over the previous two years, this was overwhelming. It was an open and shut case, and that was proved by the length of time it took the jury to reach their verdict. It was just two hours, two hours in a murder trial uh, to find Chris Halliwell guilty.
0: After the guilty verdict, the judge's final remarks were damning. Your account of the circumstances in which Becky met her death bears all the hallmarks of a contrived explanation designed to avoid conviction in the hope that the minimum term you are presently serving will not be increased. But the account which you advanced so glibly with little or no regard to the truth made no sense at all. I have had the opportunity of observing you throughout the trial and listening to your evidence. I have no doubt that you are a self-centred and domineering individual who wants his own way. You are both calculating and devious. You knew Rebecca Godden and had known her for some time. It was not a conventional relationship. I consider it unlikely that you were besotted with her. In my judgement, your behaviour towards her was controlling. You used her for sex whenever you wanted to, taking advantage of her vulnerability as a drug addict and sex worker. She had little or no time for you. In the early hours of January 3rd, 2003, when she was standing outside the Desire and Destiny Club with Rebecca Boast, you drove up in your taxi and summoned her. That could only have been because you wanted her to go with you for sex, but she was clearly not interested. She returned to join her friend, but you remained, and so she went to speak to you a second time. A row developed, during which she yelled at you, clear evidence that she did not want to go with you. She returned again to her friend, but you did not drive off, and so it was that she went to your taxi and got into a rear seat. Rebecca Bost described her as huffed, that is to say annoyed, and I conclude she joined you unwillingly. You then drove to somewhere private, most probably to the south of Swindon and to Savanak Forest, where eight years later you took Sharno Callahan. What then happened must be a matter of inference. I take as my starting point the evidence of your injuries when you were examined later that day by your general practitioner, a broken little finger and scratches to your face. I reject your evidence that you had been involved in a fight with a would-be passenger. I conclude you must have attacked Rebecca Godden. That attack must have been prompted by her refusing you sex. When she put up a struggle, you killed her. You clearly intended to kill her. I add that I am certain she struggled desperately in an attempt to save her life, but she was physically no match for you. You then drove to Oxo Bottom Field, which you knew to be very isolated. There, you had the presence of mind to remove her clothing to ensure if her body was found, That there would be no forensic links to your taxi and to you. You returned the next night to bury her, and returned again and again over the following years to make sure that her body was not visible in that shallow grave. When on March 24th, 2011, you realised you had no chance of avoiding detection for the murder of Sharno Callahan, you very briefly allowed the little conscience you have to prompt your confession to the murder of Rebecca Godin. I consider that but for that confession, there is every prospect that Rebecca Godin's remains would not have been found, but such mitigation that provides is overweighed by your subsequent behaviour. Following your arrest, you answered no comment to all questions, And you have since sought to manipulate, first the police investigation and then the court process, in a futile attempt to avoid the punishment you so richly deserve." The judge gave Halliwell a life sentence and directed that there be a whole life order, meaning that Halliwell could never be released. It was, of course, a big day for everyone involved, none more so than Karen.
4: And Christopher Halliwell stood trial for Becky's and found guilty within two hours by the jurors of murdering Becky. And he was sentenced to a whole life tariff, which not many people get that, in Bristol court. That day I felt, and this is going to sound awful, but I felt totally elated. I felt that a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. I felt this weight that had been weighing me down for years and years and years. Finally, finally we had the justice, but we shouldn't have had to have fought for the justice in the way we did. After the trial, I came out to do my interview on the steps with my husband Charlie beside me, as always. I can remember thanking Steve Fulcher for investigating in the beginning and bringing Becky home. I thanked the detectives that had worked hard on bringing Christopher Halliwell to justice and had just been convicted for Becky's murder. I couldn't thank the hierarchy of Wiltshire Police, because I felt if they hadn't systematically destroyed Steve Fulcher and focused on Becky's murder investigation, because predominantly in that courtroom, it was evidence that they already had, evidence that Steve Fulcher had found in the beginning that was used in that courtroom to bring that conviction, I would have had not six years of purgatory, not five years of purgatory, I would have had all of this put to bed within a year of Becky being found.
0: Christopher Halliwell is in all probability going to die in prison, a fact many people will see as justice. But for Steve Fulcher, whose efforts brought Halliwell to this position and but for whose actions this would never have happened, justice still feels remote. Steve Brodie describes what this cost Steve Fulcher. Before the Charlie Hallinan
3: murder, I only knew Steve Fulcher in a professional manner. Very good to interview, got good results. Uh, you knew you were going to get a straight answer and therefore, you know, if you, he was in charge of a, of a major incident, you, you liked it. And I certainly didn't know him until it all fell apart. Since then, I have got to know him. An entirely straight and honorable man, the sort of policeman you'd want, really. Uh, but it has affected him extraordinarily. It certainly nearly broke him. Uh, he had difficulty dealing with it. Uh, I think he found it very difficult to make a living, had to go overseas, leave his family behind, because it was the only place he could earn some money. And I know he's campaigning, and will continue to campaign alongside Karen Edwards to try and A, clear his name, and B, get a change in the law, which would mean that other police officers would not be put in his position. Nobody wants to go back to the corruption of the 60s and 70s in police forces in Britain. Certainly not me. I've, I've watched it. But to crucify somebody for trying his best, get closure for two families, doesn't make a lot of sense.
1: This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it, too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores, like UGG, Samsung, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. That's Rakuten. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a
0: tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. As I said at the start of this series, this is one of those stories you just can't get out of your head. Clearly, it touches a nerve somewhere. So far, it has been the subject of at least two books, multiple TV documentaries, and a primetime TV drama starring Martin Freeman, written by Jeff Pope for ITV. It's fair to say the issues are out in the open. But what has changed? According to Becky's mother, Karen, nothing.
4: Nothing's changed. Nothing. Nothing. There's still those grey areas in Pace. And Pace, it's not black and it's not white. There's grey areas, which has been proven there's grey areas. I'm living proof of that. There are gray areas within PACE. And that needs to be looked at. And I think the person to look at that is Steve Fulcher. At the end of the day, he is a police officer. He works, worked with PACE. And he's surely, people would want his input on PACE and how he feels that it should be changed. Keep PACE there, it needs to be there. It needs to be there to protect, but it also should be guidelines. There's areas that it's either got to be enhanced or it needs to be rewritten because it's wrong. I think the whole, the whole, Damien Green told me that pace rules are updated periodically. They are updated. So it's about time that pace is looked at again. Christopher Halliwell is a control freak. He likes to be in control. I have learned an awful lot about Christopher Halliwell, and I've studied serial killers, and he ticks every single box. He will be wallowing in his prison cell. And I always used to say, bring back hanging. But not now, because every day he's got to get up. He used to like fishing. He was a taxi driver. He liked that freedom. He's never going to get that again, never. And our girls are going to be safe on the streets now. Parents out there can rest assured that Christopher Halliwell will not be giving them a lift home in their taxi at nighttime. They can rest assured that their daughters are going to be safe from Christopher Halliwell anyway, because Steve Fulcher has taken off the streets a serial killer.
0: And Karen is absolutely right, not only did Steve Fulcher catch a killer, he also saved the lives of Halliwell's future victims. Because a man who's murdered two and maybe more, would very likely kill again. But where does all of this leave Steve? Does the fact that his story has been turned into a primetime TV drama give him any satisfaction?
1: Yeah, it, it does to some extent. I, I suppose it's only because the reason I like Jeff Pope and his A Confession, which has gone right around the world. Do you know it's been broadcast in 96 countries and been translated into seven languages and so on? The reason I liked it was because Jeff Pope, by profession, was a uh, investigative journalist. And he met me and he told me a story about another police case that he'd dealt with in which he clearly thought the copper was results at any cost and... Uh, you know, had limited sympathy for him and um, obviously over the course of a considerable amount of time spent together he realised, well, I like to think he realised, that I, I'm not some kind of crazed lunatic and he just told my story exactly as I needed it to be put in front of the public, i.e. the facts, with, as the way he cut it, with the two bereaved women, um, Sean and Becky's mothers, and there, there it is for the public to make their own mind up, what would you want done if your daughter was abducted? So just for the first time, somebody just putting the facts simply and without an editorial slant or a polemic twist to it. This is what happened. These are the reasons why it happened. How do you want this to play out? Should it? Should the circumstances repeat? My view was that my, this case with Halliwell was grotesquely misrepresented because people didn't understand what it was about. They thought it was about a copper going rogue or acting in a maverick fashion or doing all kinds of crazy things, but it wasn't. I followed the law and the ACPO
0: kidnapping and extortion guidance to the letter. And while telling his story and getting it out into the world is one thing, it's clear when you talk to Steve that he is less positive about the question of whether the story has had any impact in the real world of policing.
1: My principal overriding reaction is deep concern for the state of British policing and the lack of confidence that the public could or should have in British policing, given what's played out here. And I'm very sad that I've spent an entire lifetime, a career, in something that is so fundamentally flawed, so lacking in any integrity or sense of honour. Now, I do understand this point, which is Pace is there to protect the innocent because of the excesses of police behavior in times past, maybe currently. The reason I was treated in the way I was is because the police hierarchy did not want to set a precedent or allow any police officers malpractice anywhere in the country for those officers to refer to me and say, well, Steve Fulcher did X, therefore this is justified. They didn't want to set a precedent. But I haven't done anything wrong. And if we start getting confused about what our role is in crimes in action and kidnap, then the public are in, in extreme peril. So this has gone through the various machinery of IPCC investigation, which is a travesty, a simple travesty. And at the end of it, we're left with a nonsensical judgment in which the presiding panel claimed that I should have never have found Sean. And the corollary of that, of course, is Halliwell would walk free because what they say exactly is, if I was acting under the aegis of section 11 of Pace, quite properly conducting an urgent interview because of the risk to Sean's life at such time as we were en route from Barbary Castle to Uffington, as I considered it more likely that she's dead than alive from the language he had used, Halliwell had used, that I should have stopped the car, turned it round and gone back to the police station. The corollary of that is, of course, I would have a verbal account and no recovery of the victim. It's the evidence on the recovery of the victim, the DNA evidence from Halliwell that convicted him. That's what they said. And frankly, it's this kind of pitiful lack of knowledge, understanding, or even basic common sense that pervades current policing. You're left with this situation, which is you can have the abductor, the kidnapper in front of you and your loved one won't survive. Now, ironically enough, if I'd contacted him by telephone, you know, what we do in kidnap cases is we put a red centre in. Red centre is a negotiator on a telephone. And we would phone that party and negotiate. What do you want to return the hostage? Do you want money? Do you want facilities? That isn't done under caution. You don't start that conversation with, I have to caution you. That's nonsense. I am negotiating, at Barbary Castle, I was negotiating with Christopher Halliwell for a young girl's life. If I'd done it by
0: telephone, standing two yards from him, people would perhaps understand. Not surprisingly, faced with the same circumstances, Steve isn't in any doubt about what he'd do, regardless of the personal cost.
1: Well, it it destroyed my life and my finances, my family, my uh, employability. All those things I'll happily sacrifice if I've provided some comfort for... Sean's family and for Becky's family and as I say if I'm right and Halliwell has the propensity for murder on the scale that I believe I've saved other girls lives so I'll happily make that sacrifice but it was so unnecessary
0: once again we asked the Wiltshire police for comment here is their reply Wiltshire Police did not conduct an investigation into former Detective Superintendent Fulcher. Following the ruling of Lord Justice Cox that former Detective Superintendent had significantly and substantially breached pace, a public complaint was lodged by Becky's father, John Godden, and this was immediately referred to the Independent Police Complaints Commission by Wiltshire Police. To ensure complete impartiality, The IPCC decided that an independent investigation would be undertaken by them, not by Wiltshire Police. The IPCC investigation concluded that a misconduct hearing should take place to consider a number of allegations relating to potential gross misconduct. The force accepted the conclusions and arranged for an independent misconduct panel to convene chaired by the then Warwickshire Police Chief Constable Andrew Parker, now retired. The panel considered independently whether or not his actions had breached the standards of professional behaviour that apply to all police officers in England and Wales. The hearing found him guilty of two counts of gross misconduct and he was issued with a final written warning. Throughout the investigation, Steve was provided with ongoing welfare support. Given how different this can look depending on where you're standing, how many detectives, having seen his story, would make the same sacrifice as Steve Fulcher? With what happened to Steve and the enormous notoriety of the case, can you be confident that if your loved one has been abducted, the police would go to the same lengths to recover them. Journalist Steve Brody worries about that repercussion.
3: I think every SIO in the country would, would have no hesitation of saying back to the police station. And that's where we are. And that, of course, is very worrying because it means that potential murderers will get away with it. That other families will have to wait decades until perhaps the the bodies of their loved ones are found. There is no doubt that if Steve Forger hadn't got the confession from Christopher Halliwell, the body of Becky Godden Edwards would not have been found. It had been there for eight years already. It would still be there to this day. It was a shallow grave, admittedly, but it's unlikely that it would have been found. Short of a building site being placed in an obscure field in the middle of Gloucestershire, which is highly unlikely. And that's the problem. I agree with Steve Fulcher in that this is bad news for families, for victims. But I don't criticize SIOs for taking the decision that we'll take somebody back to a police station and give them access to a lawyer. Their careers are at stake. Their families are at stake. Their livelihoods are at stake. Why risk it if you know you're not going to be supported? I think in what respect here, they lack subtlety. They lack the ability not to bend the rules or to break them, but to expand them to cope with a certain set of factors. In this case, it was quite obvious you're getting a confession from a serial killer. Now that can't be wrong. If there's any suspicion of the old thing of verbaling up or putting words into people who've been arrested, mouths, certainly not. We do not want to go back to that under any circumstances. But in this case, this lack of flexibility has resulted in a series of tragic circumstances on top of an already tragic situation.
0: And while Steve Fulcher is prepared to bear the cost of what happened to him, he is concerned about the message of what happened to him sends to other officers. The reason it's important is not for me personally as a casualty of war, if you like,
1: but every police officer in my position is now minded to avoid and abrogate their responsibility, pass the buck, and never get into a position where we proactively identify serial killers and serious criminality as exemplified by Christopher Halliwell. Pace is not inviolable such that you would accept the death of the party you're charged with saving. Everything about this case hinges on this issue. And you know, I've made that quote directly that uh, a senior chief constable said the pace is inviolable, and if the girl dies, so be it. If that's the current thinking in policing, the British public need to know this. They're wrong. What I did was right. Section 11 precisely provides for it, and the oath of office of a constable requires me to do this. So we've had IPCC reports, which are simply ridiculous. They don't make any logical sense. They don't bear any scrutiny. We've had a police discipline panel who state, I must be made an example of to prevent other officers acting in a similar fashion. ACPO National Crime Committee stating that we will allow for the death of kidnapped parties rather than breach code C PACE rights. I'm saying they're wrong. and. Um, I'm saying it's actually one of the more important public interest issues because the public have to have confidence that the police will save their daughter, when called, to do so. The fundamental issue is whether the victim's right to life is or isn't subordinate to an offender's right to silence, whether a victim's right to life under Article 2 of the Human Rights Act does or doesn't take primacy over her offenders right to silence under the guidance of code C of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. And that's a key and crucial issue because following the treatment meted out to me post this case and my ultimately losing my career, it's quite apparent that no police officer would act in the way that I did, prioritizing Sharno Callahan's life and seeking to save it under the extreme circumstances that I was faced with. All I can do is lay the facts in front of the public tried to raise it with uh, in two court hearings between two different high court judges raised it with government ministers the last court of of note the most important court is the court of public uh, opinion the court of public opinion will if they've given the facts be able to decide what would they want
0: The story of Steve Vulture and his arrest of Christopher Halliwell for the murders of Shan O'Callaghan and Becky Godden-Edwards has had such a huge ripple effect, which means it won't be forgotten. We will leave the final comments to the mothers of the two murdered women. Sean's mother, Elaine.
5: It's. It has been, I mean, yeah, there, there are, discussions about it in the family. Not all the family. Some are not really interested in that side of it or don't have a particular view on it. And yeah, there's been discussions around it. But I think for us, its it has caused an incredible differing views and it will go on to do that with lots of people as a result. Of them now being armed with everything that went on, it's it's difficult. There's, it's not black and white. It's not clear cut. There's no right or wrong. There's no outcome that would have been. You know, it's 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 just extremely complex, um, and everyone's going to have different views on that. But people can talk about it, discuss it, weigh it all up. But ultimately, for us, that can go on and on and on. But we haven't got Sean, and th- that then um, that's the hardest.
0: And Becky's mother, Karen.
5: Well, he did. He did
4: cross the line. But he crossed the line. He had. He was in a compromising situation. What do I do? Do I take him back to the police station and give him the rights to a solicitor? We know then that Halliwell would have shut up. He shut up for months afterwards. He never confessed again. He thought, oh well, I'm here now. He's been given the rights to a solicitor. The solicitor would have told him to say nothing, remain silent, say nothing, and then you can't incriminate yourself. But Steve Fulcher knew that if he took him back to the police station, that he would never take him back to this second person who we now know was Becky, that was buried in that field. We know that is the way that our law operates. I've only sort of really got to know Steve after Becky's trial. Um, I only got to know Steve really after that. We went for a meal afterwards. And it was so lovely to actually talk to the man, who I called my hero, (laughs) that brought Becky back home. And I'm... I'll be indebted to him for the rest of my life and I know he did wrong in the police eyes, he did wrong, but in my eyes he did right and in other parents eyes he did right, in the general public eyes, majority of them, he did right, don't that count for something?